uh, Lord, the opening words to that song. We welcome you here, Lord Jesus. Father, we trust that your spirit's with us. We know that apart from your spirit, we don't have spiritual life, insight. We may be alive, but we need you to speak. Open our eyes, open the eyes of our heart. Lord, as we come to your word, we all bring needs. Some of us need conviction. Some of us need reproof. Some of us need encouragement and comfort. It's going to vary a little bit to all of us. You have all that we need. And pray that as we work through a difficult story, a challenging a portion of your word this morning. Help us to each have the grace you mean for us to, in Jesus' name, amen. At the end of World War II, the Allies uh, were making their way into Germany as the German army was falling apart. And uh, one of the things that happened was Allied soldiers started finding camps they weren't quite sure what to make of. And you and I know these as concentration camps, this is all history for us, but they had no idea as they started going into Germany what they were going to find. And so General Eisenhower from our own Abilene, Kansas, Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces, heard about this camp. This was in central Germany and the camp's name was Ordruf. And his soldiers were telling him what they were finding and, and he couldn't believe it. So Eisenhower with Patton and Bradley, these three chief generals, they went to this camp. And this is in part what Eisenhower wrote to the Joint Chiefs of Staff back in D.C. He said, The most interesting, although horrible, sight that I encountered during the trip was a visit to a German internment camp near Gotha. The things I saw beggar description. While I was touring the camp, I encountered three men who had been inmates, and by one ruse, one trick or another, had made their escape. I interviewed them through an interpreter. The visual evidence and the verbal testimony of starvation, cruelty, and bestiality were so overpowering as to leave me a bit sick. In one room where they piled up 20 or 30 naked men killed by starvation, George Patton would not even enter. He said that he would get sick if he did so. Now, you know, Patton is a war-hardened general. He would not go into the room to look at what was there. He said, I made the visit deliberately in order to be in a position to give first-hand evidence of these things, if ever. Now, this was prescient on his part, on Eisenhower's part. He said, if ever in the future there develops a tendency to charge these allegations merely to propaganda... Now, it was Jews in the camp, of course, but it wasn't just Jews. It was East Europeans. It was anyone that the Germans considered extraneous. Part of Patton's letter, and if you've been to the Holocaust Museum in D.C., Washington, D.C., you know, it's up on the wall. I think it's as you come out of the museum there. Uh, Eisenhower said he wanted all this recorded. He didn't just go to the one camp. They took pictures. There's videos. They documented all this because he said it's so horrific, people won't believe this in the future. And it was not very many years later in which people, especially in the Middle East, were saying the Holocaust never happened. Eisenhower knew that was coming and he said, we want to document this, we want to be aware of it, because it's a warning. It's a warning about what men will do to other men, what one portion of humanity is willing to do to another portion of humanity. There was a Wall Street Journal et op piece uh, just a day ago in which they're usually talking about uh, politics and finance, 
But the guy's peace was on the inhumanity of man to man that was a given based on the murder in a synagogue in, uh, I think it was Philadelphia or Pennsylvania, a week ago. So Eisenhower wanted this to be a warning. The Holocaust Museum is there so that we remember this is what we're capable of. They're meant to be a warning. We're going to be in a text, in a passage this morning, that God has set up for over 4,000 years to be a warning to us. So this is the ninth lesson in the Heroes and Villains series, and we're looking at a, a place and a group. This is a little different. This is not an individual. A place and a group that God mentions throughout the Bible as a warning twofold against our own wickedness. Think of the Holocaust Museum and Eisenhower. And also about God's commitment to judge unrighteousness. So the place is Sodom, and its name remains instantly connected with both man's wickedness and God's willingness to judge sin. We're going to look at several elements of this story this morning, probably more than you may be aware of. The most important, though, like the Holocaust Museum, is that Sodom stands as a warning to any person at any time or place who would entertain the idea that God will not judge sin. That for one reason or another, God will overlook sin. Sodom is a constant reminder throughout the scriptures that God will and he must judge sin. Uh, Sodom comes up in biblical history really early, earlier than Abraham himself. It comes up in Genesis 10 in the genealogies. So you remember we said when Noah's sons get off the ark, they start repopulating the earth. And we know that from Ham and Canaan came Nimrod, Canaan's line is, is not well known for its godly descendants. Remember from Ham comes Canaan. The Canaanites are the arch enemy of Israel as they'll come back into the land. You remember Nimrod came from Canaan's line as well. Nimrod's that arch enemy against God, the rebel against God who institutes those first key cities, Babel and Nineveh. And from that same line in Genesis 10 we're told that it's the Canaanites who populate Sodom. So we know their origin. It's not auspicious to begin with. This is from the ESV Study Bible. It's got an image, and, and guys, this is all guesswork. Nobody knows uh, where Sodom was for sure. This shows it on the east side of the Dead Sea. You can see the other cities of the plain there, Zoar, Adma, Zeboim, and Gomorrah, around the same place. Historically, most archaeologists think from the text and from archaeology that that would have been the area that Sodom and Gomorrah were located. Uh, there's more recent study by a guy who happens to be a Christian, an archaeologist, who suggests that instead of the end, the southern end of the Dead Sea, it's actually on the northern end of the Dead Sea. We know it's around the Jordan River Valley area at least because that's what the scripture says very clearly. When Abram and Lot, when their story's going on, Sodom is already a thriving city. And we're not covering this this morning, but in Genesis 14, Sodom's one of the cities and the kings that rebels against the kings of the east and loses a battle. Abraham already knows something about Sodom because, as we'll see here, Lot, his nephew, lives there. He rescued Lot, remember, and the people of the city of Sodom in Genesis 14 when they'd all been taken captive. So, Abraham's a little bit uh, aware of what's going on there. So let's start with what God says about Sodom. You, you remember uh, Lot, his nephew, Abraham's nephew, came along with him. And uh, God blesses them. 
and they get lots of sheep and goats and herdsmen, and there's so many that they say they can't live together anymore. They need to split up, go their ways. So Abraham says to Lot, you choose whatever you want. You go one way, I'll go another. Lot looks down into the river valley, and he says, it's green, it's well watered. That's the place for me. So there, there he goes. God says to Abraham, no problem. It's all yours anyway. Look around. Genesis 13, 13, as soon as Lot has chosen the area in the river valley, God says this. This is unsolicited, but God's letting us know what he thinks. The men of Sodom were wick, wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So we know they're Canaanites, and now we know that they are wicked, great sinners against the Lord. You get into Genesis 18, 20, and this is the story, the same chapter where God and his angels, Yahweh, God the Son, with two angel visitors, they all look like men, they go and visit Abraham. And in the context of that meeting, it says, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see. So on the front end, God is giving his opinion of what these cities are like and what's going on there. He doesn't, by the way, here specifically say what their sins are initially. He just says it's a big deal to him. So we'll start with the area of Sodom's sin that is the most well-known. This is in Genesis 19. So in Genesis 19, God sends those two angelic messengers, they look like men, to the city of Sodom. He's going to verify that things are really as bad as he hears. God's omniscient. He doesn't have to do this, of course, but it's sort of God entering our stream of humanity, and he's showing it really is as bad as it seems. So after Abraham's nephew Lot takes in these two angelic messengers, you remember they go into the city, and they're going to spend the night in the city square, and Lot comes along and says, I'll take you in. And they say, no, no, it's okay. We'll sleep here. And he says, no, you shouldn't. Don't, don't do that. Come home with me. So picking up at verses 4 and 5, it says, Before they lay down to sleep in Lot's house, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and notice the totality here, young and old, all the people, to the last man, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. That is, that we may have homosexual sex with them, whether they're willing or not. And and if you were a Jew reading the Bible back in the day and you heard this introduction, the men of the city surround a house demanding someone for sex. This is just like Judges 19, where a very similar story occurs. And we understand this is really, really bad. Two of the worst stories in the Bible are Genesis 19 and Judges 19. <clears throat> So the guys say, bring them out, we're going to have our way with them. Lot tries to intervene, this is Genesis 19.10. Lot says, hey guys, don't. Now remember, Lot knows these guys and they know him. And Lot says, guys, please don't. And they say, we'll deal worse with you than with them. So on the introduction, when the angelic visitors go in, we know that the city is known for its wickedness and their sin is great. We now know that their sin is sexual in nature, specifically homosexuality, and violent pursuit. We had a good discussion in Sunday school this morning. In fact, we're going to have many, many points, same points out of the message this morning about that. You can have people that practice the same sin, 
but are on a vastly different scale about where their hearts are at and what motivates them. These guys are pursuing homosexual sex with great violence. They're going to harm anybody that gets in their way. That's the second thing. And the third thing is this. They sin against strangers instead of giving them hospitality. This isn't something that we might think much of, but it's a big deal in the Old Testament. And you remember we talked before about sometimes in Scripture, God will lay things out side by side because He means for us to see that contrast. So if you went back into Genesis 18, you've got three strangers that approach Abraham in his tent. And what does he do? He says, hey guys, come here, sit under the shade tree. My wife and I will prepare a meal for you. We'll take care of you. That's the way you, you treated strangers. You remember the Old Testament orphans, widows, and strangers are the most vulnerable. And so the way you treated them was indicative of where your heart was at related to your relationship with the Lord. Hospitality was a big deal. So when those guys come into the city, what does Lot do? He invites them into his home. This was the understood thing you would do for any stranger. But what are these guys in Sodom doing? They not only don't invite someone in for care, but they say we're going to violate you any way we want to. So, we know that everybody sins. And sometimes in a kind of misguided um, way to minimize one form of sin or another we say all sin is sin all sin is equal and there's ways in which that's true all sin is offensive to god all sin brings death absolutely but all sin is not equal in the judgment god will bring upon it, upon it or equal in the kind of death it brings its own fruit all sins are not equal this is an image of dante's version of hell if you remember dante said that there were varying levels of hell and the the, the worst there in the very bottom were people like Judas who were betrayers. They betrayed trust. They betrayed innocent blood. It's a good reminder that all sins are equally heinous in a sense to God, but some sins will get greater punishment in hell. Some sins bring greater degrees of judgment in life here. So sexual sin strikes at the heart of our image-bearing capability in ways that other sins don't. And this is the day and the time we live in, not unlike the days of Sodom. Uh, you know, if you, uh, if you had a homosexual friend, if you had somebody who'd been violated in their youth, this, was, this came up in Sunday school, someone's effeminate, and you realize this is the fruit of, they've been abused all their life, and you say, well, that's one way of seeing this. But if you went to a gay pride parade, you'd see a very different kind of attitude. We're not saying that everybody who has this sin, homosexuality, is all doing it out of the same way. You, you know what I mean? Same motive, same background. You could have people that we would say truly are victims, and you can have other people in that same camp that are victimizers. So they're not all the same, though the sin may physically look the same. But to this, Romans 1 uh, talks about this digression. Romans 1 is to show that all the Gentiles are sinners before God. Romans 2 is going to show that Jews are too. And Romans 3 culminates by saying everybody's a sinner. But in Romans 1, it shows this digression. And you remember for Noah, Noah got off the boat and so did his sons with the knowledge of God, with the truth. God spoke to Noah. God said, this is what's going on. Noah's sons know that. When they get off the boat, they all have the same knowledge. But Romans 1 says there's a point at which we make up our mind individually or historically and we say, I know the truth, but I'm not interested in it. And so I turn away from it. 
And when I turn from the truth, I start embracing variations of untruth or lies, and it's all going to bring death. And so in Romans 1, you've got this downward spiral, just like Dante's version of hell, this downward spiral in which God continues, the text says, to give people over to the fallen inclinations of their own heart. And at the end of that, God says is this loss of identity in the image of God. He characterizes it specifically as homosexuality or lesbianism, whatever you want to call it. So there's a particular, if you will, it looks like on the spectrum of sin from turning from truth to fully accepting death, the sins of Sodom are somewhere near the end of the line there in the development or the progression away from God. And so they bring a very, very specific kind of judgment in time and then later in eternity. We know the sins of Sodom are with us today. And this is a challenge for us as the church. We'll, we'll talk about this in just a minute. But we want to be aware of what's going on in the culture. And then we want to have Christ's attitude. And we want to have Christ's kind of response to what's going on in the culture as well. So, back in Genesis 18, when God told Abraham, Abraham's his man. And Sodom is in Abraham's backyard. And God says, I better tell my man Abraham what I'm going to do. And so he says, I'm going to go down. I'm going to verify what's going on in Sodom before I judge it. And do you remember Abraham's response? Because this is key. Abraham says, Lord, will you, will you judge the righteous with the unrighteous, with the wicked? And God says, no, I wouldn't do that. He says, well, Lord, if there's 50 righteous in Sodom, will you spare the whole city? God says, I'll do it. And you know, it's that famous back and forth between Abraham and God. What's Abraham trying to do? Because you know when he stops at 10, I'm sure his assumption is, I know there's 10 righteous in Sodom. There's got to be. There, there weren't. But I'm sure that's his thought. He was praying for Sodom. He was praying that God's judgment against Sodom would be withheld. Now, Abraham knows Lot is there, and we know that God will save Lot. But Abraham is petitioning God for the men in Sodom that he knows. He knows what they're like. You remember when he rescued them, he told the king of Sodom, I wouldn't take anything from you. He knows them, he's praying for them, he's interceding for them. And Abraham's attitude should be ours. We want to be very careful about having an us-them mentality. There is an us and them ultimately, but only God knows who that is. We want to be very careful. We want to entertain Abraham's kind of compassion for people he knew weren't right with God. God, would you stay your hand? Would you stay your hand? Proclaiming the gospel is a big deal for us. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. If we mention the term Sodom today and we're thinking history or judgment, we're thinking of, of that city and what God did to it and probably some form of of sexual sin, some form of sexual perversion. If you stopped there, you wouldn't have enough of the information God wants us to have about the city and what was going on. So physically we say this is what their sin looked like, but God brings up Sodom again in Ezekiel for a very different reason. This is from Ezekiel 16. And Ezekiel 16 is a very, in fact, most commentators consider it the most graphic chapter in the Bible talking about sexual issues. It's God uses sex as a lens to talk about idolatry, what's going on. It's a very graphic text. But this is what he says in Ezekiel 16 when he's talking to 
the Jews in Judah and specifically in Jerusalem, he tells them, you look a lot like Sodom, right? So he's reproving them. And this is what he says. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had, now listen to the sins, pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them just as I saw it. Now, in, isn't the order there interesting? See, I assume the abomination, that's the sexual sin at the end. But where does the sin start? It starts with pride. It doesn't start with sex. It starts with pride. So you say the attitude that allowed or informed the digression down and away from God starts with pride. The physical acting out is the last version of that. It starts with pride. It says you've got pride, you've got excess, you've got ease, you became haughty, more pride, and then you did an abomination. It's the last thing there. It's not the first, it's the last. Sodom's sin wasn't just homosexuality, it was pride. And pride, of course, emboldens every other sin. A pride and a haughtiness born of prosperity, plenty to eat, but no care for the poor around them. You know, if pride is fueled by, by ease, potentially ease, and material plenty, we need to be careful about our own attitude, don't we? Because that sounds a lot like not just the United States, but the Western world. I mean, compared to those in history, we have materially plenty, and we have ease. And pride became part of that for them. The application on Sodom uh, goes way beyond those that we might think sexually look like Sodom. It, it includes a lot more people than that, and, and it gets more broad or more focused, if you will, related to God's people here in a little bit. So faithfulness to God and to their neighbors would have meant that out of their prosperity... They help those who lack the basic necessities. Remember, God's deal is love God first, all your heart, and then love others. And what you see in Sodom is a rejection of God, love for God, and then a rejection for their fellow human beings as well. One was tied to the other. So Sodom's sin ended up being physical, but it started with a spiritual attitude of pride. There's something that happens with this, and guys, this can happen to us too. If you know Christ, this can still happen to you in one way and another. As the guys are around Lot's house trying to break in, to harm Lot now, and to get those angels, those men angels, the angels strike the men with blindness. Physically, they can't see now, so they're confused. Physically, they're blind. But after that, it says, Genesis 19 verse 12 the men the angel said to lot have you anyone else here are there sons-in-law daughters or anyone you have in the city bring them out of the place we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the lord and the lord sent us to destroy it so the angels are in lot's house i assume his wife's there his two daughters are there and so the question is is there anybody else here that we need to get out because the city's going down so, Lot's two daughters, they're engaged. You know, it's a little different back then. They're engaged, but they're called son-in-laws because once the engagement had happened, it was as if they were married. You see the same thing with the Jews. So, Lot says, verse 14, 
Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law. Now remember the setting. They're surrounding the house. The angels had struck them with blindness. I don't know if that's still the case, if they're still physically blind, but listen to this. Son-in-law said to his son-in-laws who were to Mary's daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. That might be like us sharing the gospel. Up, get out, the Lord's going to destroy the city. Their response is this, but he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting, ESV says. Joking. (laughs) Now think about the setting. That the city will be consumed in a conflagration of fire before another day is out. So it's going to happen the next day, the next morning or early afternoon, whatever it is. And so you've got somebody telling you the place is going to be destroyed. Get up now and save your life. And it sounds to them like a joke. They cannot take it in. Because spiritually they've been so dulled by their sin and their pride that the truth no longer has a point of entry. That's sort of the end of that progression of sin. I no longer can take the truth. Romans 1 again. I turned from it. I said I didn't want it. I get to the point where I can't get it. I have no, no, uh, I have no ability left for the truth to come in and be accepted. It's gone. And that's where these guys are at. The truth, you're going to be destroyed before the day is out, sounds like a joke. There's no place for them to take it in. Now, guys, that doesn't end there. You follow this through the Scripture, and you see that this is the common thread. So this is from Acts 26. The Apostle Paul's talking to King Agrippa and Governor Festus, and he's sharing the gospel, and he's telling them, you need to repent. And God's, God is a righteous judge, and He's going to judge righteously. It's just like Lot talking to the men of Sodom. And what does Festus say? He says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. You've lost it. You've lost your hold on rationality and truth. Paul says, I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking true and rational words. What I'm saying is true. It's logical. It makes sense. And you can't hear it. That's Festus's response. You go to 1 Corinthians. Remember the Corinthian church was, or the Corinthian culture was a lot like our culture today. Affluent, there was wealth, there was ease, there was pride. Sexual immorality, to be called a Corinthian back in the day was a slam. You're the worst of the worst regarding sexual immorality. Paul said there, the word of the cross, the gospel, is folly. It's a bad joke to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The same message. Lot hears the message. You've got to get out of here. Lot, it's like, I get it. Let's go. His son-in-laws hear it, and they say it's a bad joke. Just like Festus, just like the Corinthians. It doesn't end there either in Acts 17, which is a, a powerful passage for me. It's the whole transition you know when we talk about the gospel we're appealing to people to be saved it's an appeal and we're good with that but the gospel is also a command in scripture the the nations the people are commanded to repent and trust christ to order their way right before their god and maker that's what paul says in Acts 17 in athens he says god commands all people everywhere to repent that's not an appeal it's a command from your maker Repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. That's Sodom. 
God will judge in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. On this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So there on Mars Hill in Athens, Paul gives that same message and what's the response? It's just like Sodom. It says many mocked. It's a bad joke. You've got to be kidding. We don't go for this stuff. But, there's also this, but others said, we will hear more. And you know, when, uh, I think there's a, there's a temptation for discouragement when you think about sharing the gospel with others. You say, well, I've had all these conversations and nobody's biting. Or I just don't see folks coming to Christ. Most may mock, but some will eventually still say, well, we'd like to hear some more about this. We don't, we don't quit sharing the gospel because everybody that's heard it has said, I'm not interested. Some people will be interested. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 that he works hard to share the gospel for those he knows God is going to save. He's still sharing the gospel. We should too. So just as Lot warned his son-in-laws, Paul warned Agrippa, it's incumbent on us to continue to share the gospel as broadly as uh, as possible. We need to work at this. We need to challenge each other on this in your home groups. Are you asking each other? Are you having those conversations? Are we praying for those folks that God would open the door, that we get opportunities, and that we're ready for them when they're presented to us? So you got the guys, they validated, the angels validated the status in Sodom. It's as bad as, as we all thought. It's as bad as God already knew it was. And then eventually the destruction comes. So the next day, uh, Lot and his daughters, his wife initially, we'll look at Lot next time, um, but they flee the city, right? They get out, they're going to go to that little city of Zoar where they'll be safe. And it says, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and, and, and listen to how this is identified as to who's at work here. The sun had risen, Lot's in Zoar, he's safe. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven and he the Lord overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground it's total total destruction Abraham looks down towards the valley all the land of the valley he looked and behold the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace one of the things you see throughout scripture furnaces and fire are both used for God's judgment as imagery routinely and repeatedly so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley God remembered Abraham, sent Lot out of the midst of the city when he, God, overthrew the cities in which Lot, Lot had lived. Five times God takes credit for destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. God wants everybody to know he takes credit that he has judged Sodom. And it's meant to be a warning. Back then and today as well. And all throughout history, the same thing. It's a warning. Remember like the floodwaters of Noah's day? God destroyed all life except Noah and started over. You see this theme, and we'll, we'll wind down on that in a minute. You see this theme that God uses those past judgments to tell people today, I judge sin. I must always judge sin. I will judge sin. It's a given. There are speculations, by the way, on what that looked like. Uh... And it is interesting, the archaeologists know there are layers of destruction at the south end and the north end of the Dead Sea. So they know these areas were inhabited. There was a great conflagration. Uh, temperatures 
where you know chemically matter changes under heat they know these were superheated events that ended the occupation of these areas for hundreds of years before occupation restarted that's true on both ends of the Dead Sea how did that happen one theory was that a comet burst above those cities and that the comet burst was this instantaneous fireball if you will that that was over all of those cities another one that's historically been around a little longer the south end of the Dead Sea it's known for the pit the pitch pits and that's an unstable area geographically this thought is that there was an eruption out of one of those fissures it spewed um, gases and liquids into the air they ignited they were already superheated they ignited and then all that rained back down on the city whatever means God used that whole area was consumed by fire the judgment of God's fire consumed it so we know that happened uh, Sodom the term Sodom is used 48 times in Scripture and when you get past the story itself in Genesis 19 it's used in a couple different ways the first way is this Sodom is used as an accusation against someone or some group that you're acting like you belong in Sodom it's an accusation so in each time nine times an accusation of Sodom that you look like Sodom is addressed to God's own people it's not addressed to Gentiles it's addressed to Israel you look like Sodom you're living like those that I destroyed in Sodom Sodom as an accusation is made against God's people Sodom is also used as a warning 12 times six are in the Old Testament six are in the New in the New Testament six of those have to do with Israel um, Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel both say the same things Jesus says after he's proclaimed the gospel to those cities especially in the north around the Sea of Galilee he says it will be more tolerable for the people from Sodom than it will be for you in the judgment so you're a Jew and you think you're in good standing and you hear Jesus words and you say I don't think he's really the Messiah and Jesus says you will suffer greater condemnation under God's judgment than did the people of Sodom that's interesting that's a warning to people who are religious but don't take Jesus or Jesus words seriously they say thanks but I'm not interested and this is where we'll wind down in 2nd Peter 2 and then in Jude as well this whole aspect of warning is where Peter in the end of the New Testament winds down related to the use of Sodom and both 2nd Peter and Jude which are very similar in language and theme they both bring up Sodom for this very same reason right at the tail end of the New Testament being written so in 2nd Peter 2 verses 4 through 10 Peter's warning and Jude does the same thing they're warning the church even in those early days of the church they said there's going to be false prophets and false teachers in your midst you remember Paul said in Acts 20 wolves from among you elders are going to rise up some of you are going to end up warring against Christ's church you're going to be serving for your own purposes and your own ends well Peter said that's going to happen too so did Jude and this is what he said this is from 2nd Peter 2 as a reminder of the warning Peter said God cast sinning angels into Tartarus until they get their final judgment we won't pursue these by the way this morning but that a group of angels has been judged by God already they've been held in a, in a temporary prison until they face their final judgment 
They've been judged temporarily. They're, they're facing final judgment. Verse 5 says, God judged the world in Noah's day with a mighty flood. So Peter's just rehearsing God's judgments in the past. Then at verse 6 he says, By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Peter, as the, as the New Testament is winding down, this would have been, say, around 60 A.D., 30 years or so after the resurrection, Peter says false teachers are going to come into the church, false prophets, and God wants you to know that he's going to judge them as certainly as he judged Sodom. Sodom remains a warning against any who would assume God's not going to judge, or I can get away from my sins. I don't have to worry about that. Verse 9 then says, The Lord knows how not only to save the righteous, but to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now in this context, again, and this is what I find interesting, Sodom is not used as a warning to Gentiles who are just out there saying, I don't believe in God, like Sodom, like those in Sodom. This warning says there will be people in the church. They're not Christians. They're predators. Does this... <laughs> Does this ring any bells for us today? Uh, the, the, the abusing priests in the Roman Catholic fold, the abusing pastors in the Protestant folds. Peter's, Peter's using Sodom as a warning to professors who inhabit the church but are just like the people in Sodom. They're abusing others. They're not helping them. But they've gone into a setting where the pickings are easier. You know, when we instituted ministry safe here, as church protocol for the care of the young, we had some pushback because everybody said, well, we all know each other, but, but in fact, we don't. And we said, no, most of the abuse done to children is by people that know them. And that's the same thing that would be going on here in the church. People would come into the church, Peter says, Jude says the same thing. You'll assume they're one of you, and they're not. And they're there to abuse you or abuse those in your midst that can be abused just like the men of Sodom wanted to abuse those men, those angel messengers from God. Jude 7 says it this way, Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. In both 2 Peter and Jude, it's not only looking at judgment in time that God will bring about, but it's actually talking about the end of the world. And you know, we said Genesis 6, you got the end of the world in a flood of waters. But 2 Peter and Jude both say the same thing. They say this world as we know it is going to end in a conflagration just like Sodom did. That this earth and everything in it is going to be consumed in fire. God's final judgment before he institutes a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem in which everything is righteous. That all things, at the end of the day, God's going to righteously judge all sin. There's no escape. Everything on the planet, just like everything in Sodom, is going to be consumed in the fires of God's judgment. Sodom stands as a warning to everyone today. God will judge sin. God will judge those who reject faith in Christ. God will judge those who pretend faith in Christ, but use the church and religion as a place to practice their own abuse of sin just as he judged those in Sodom. Now, with that, 
the, the greatest testimony to God's uh, willingness or necessity to judge sin is not Sodom. And it's not the flood. It's not Genesis 6. It's not Genesis 19. It's the crucifixion. When we think about judgment, if someone says to you, would a loving God really put anyone in hell? We need to always, you can talk about Sodom, but the crucifixion is the place to go. Why is that? If our salvation required that God the Son die on the cross for our sins, if the Father is willing or by necessity must judge his own Son that he loves for our sin, the wrath due us on Christ, if he did that to save us, on what logic do we think he won't, he won't judge those who reject that costly atonement? The cross is always the place, the gospel in Christ, the gospel is always the place we go on this. It's the first place. If God judged Jesus to save you, he will judge you if you refuse that salvation. No way around that. John 5.24 says this, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, he's passed from death to life. What do you think would have happened to any of those guys in Sodom if they would have left with Lot and repented? Then they would have been saved. Do you think God saves any homosexuals today? Any transvestites? Any people that are sexually confused? He's still in the saving business, right? Any sin you and I have is forgivable. There's no sin that you could commit that's greater than the atoning blood of Jesus. You remember 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul's talking to the church and he's talking about sexual sins. He says, such were some of you. You were like them. It's not us and them, it's us. And we want to remember that the blood of Christ is still the deal. All of our sins, whatever they are, however bad they are, whatever they are, whatever they look like, all of those sins are covered by the blood of Christ. We want to make sure we know we, that we remind ourselves or that we tell others the blood of Christ, Jesus, is adequate to save you. If there's any ambiguity in our mind, if there's any confusion, any question, we want to remind ourselves Christ is sufficient to save any and to save all. Christ is sufficient to save the most wicked of sinners. And you remember that's what Paul says in his letter, that he's a testimony to God's grace because he was the worst of sinners if God would save him, by the way, not sexual sin, religious pride, he'll save anyone. So we want to make sure that we're really clear on this. God will judge sin, and he has judged sin in Christ. At the end of the day, we're simply choosing, do I accept God's payment for my sin in Christ, judgment, or do I choose to bear the judgment for my sin myself? The worst sin isn't sexual sin. The greatest warning is, isn't in regards to sex or acts of violence against others. The worst sin is to hear the offer of life from Jesus and to reject it. The greatest warning is the crucifixion that guarantees God judges sin in Christ or on us. I'm going to pray. If you're part of the worship team, why don't you come on up and uh, we'll close in just a second and we'll read this together. Lord, Have mercy on us. Thank you that you have in Christ. God, we had no hope. We were without you in this world. And you 
sent Christ to die for our sins. You, you covered our sins in his atoning blood. Thank you so much for that. Lord, would you help us to be faithful heralds, proclaimers, uh, representing you to those who don't yet know you on the earth. And Lord, would you help us just to be circumspect with our own lives and our temptations to sin so that we don't grow dull to your voice and to your word. Lord, help us to live out the days you give us here, not to be faithless, but to be faithful in all that you call us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.